Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. Welcome to FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donoghue, your gateway to genetics, research and technology in the field of personalised medicine. Hi everyone and welcome. My guest today is Dr. Sasha Beatstra-Hill, Master of Science in Environmental Health, PhD in Nutritional Genomics and holds a postgraduate degree in Human Nutrition from Deakin University. She's done research in the area of BRCA1 and BRCA2 with breast cancer risk, but today we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and the genetics underpinning that. Hi and welcome, Sasha. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. We're we're going deeper into this area of Alzheimer's, a very, very, very big issue here. I'm going to get you to give our listeners and myself a bit of a, a perspective on just how big an issue this is, because we hear terrible stories about how it's the plague of the next, you know, 20 to 30 years. Can you put some figures on that for me? Well, in Australia, it is at the moment, there is about one in people, one in 10 people by the age of 65 that have dementia, which increases to about three in 10 in those over 85. Um, Most of those uh, are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And at the moment, um, the predictions from Dementia Australia are that this number of people that have dementia is going to about more than triple by uh, in, in 40 years' time, so by 2056. Which is a, an increase just as the natural process of ageing in the population, or is it increased incidence at given ages over that time? Uh, it's, it's, it's at the given ages, indeed, yes. Just the incidence is okay. what they, they, they predict is going to increase if nothing gets done, so if no new treatments are being uh, identified or new new interventions are being found. That's right. what they're predicting because of partially because of the aging you know, gener- generation indeed, but that's what they think. It's a depressing scenario, isn't it? Uh, I mean, when, when you've run your best science and the drugs have failed one after another after another. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Where do we go next in this? I mean, do we... Do we look at it as an unsolvable problem? Do we, do we, is there known, proven early life events or diet, nutrition, things that we do early on in life that we know for sure are going to reduce the incidence and the prevalence of Alzheimer's? At the moment, there is no, as I said before, there's no proven intervention, but there is more and more research coming up that if you start looking at 20 to 25 years before Alzheimer's onset, so that's usually when you're in your midlife, mm. that there are some factors that you can change, like um, lifestyle factors, like being active, uh, not smoking, sleeping well, having a healthy diet indeed, um, and being being aware that you don't get type 2 diabetes. diabetes. Right. Uh, and also looking at other risk factors like your cholesterol, um, mental health, depression, um, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Right. Um, there is a lot of research coming out that if you look at those ones and you treat those, um, that that might, uh, in the long run, um, reduce your risk of getting, getting Alzheimer's. So some of those, I mean, the, the area we kind of r- roughly as clinicians break up, vascular 
dementia versus Alzheimer's and tend to think of vascular dementia as the the same as intervention in cardiovascular disease, stroke prevention. We tend to think that we know a number of those risk factors. And I think we tend to see Alzheimer's as that other mysterious one where amyloid plaques just appear and there's not much we can do about it. Do you have a, a thought about that? Or would, the, would the management of one, say the vascular side, which we feel more confident of, is that going to have an impact on amyloid plaque, Alzheimer's? Is there any research to suggest that that actually does work in Alzheimer's? From what I've read, um, yes, I believe it does. There is already, um, there, there is already, there's been research shown that the, the changes in amyloid and also the tau protein, that that is already changing indeed in your midlife right. before the clinical symptoms do appear of, of Alzheimer's and dementia. So they do believe that indeed looking at those things as well, and that's how you might also be able to, to, to identify people who might be at risk. That's and you can say, well, if those levels start changing, then well, maybe you have to start looking closer at the need, if you want to, of course, changing your um, modifiable risk factors right. and make sure that your vascular health is up to scratch and everything, yes. How do, how do you do that? Do you do MRIs on everybody to try and assess the very earliest stages of those changes? So can you see anything on the MRI 25 years before? From the studies that I've read, they usually are all uh, looking more more about levels of tau and everything like in your spinal fluid. Um, So you have to get pretty intervention. It has to be a very active surveillance. It's quite invasive, yes. You have to be very keen on it to have it all tested, yes. So I'm guessing that's exactly why we tend to move back to the APOEs and uh, grab blood from people to try and get a bit of a... A, a feel for the risk of dementia. Can you can you take us through that? Because the APOE, the testing is controversial because one of the mindsets in the medical community is why would you want to know when we don't know what to do? In other words, yeah. knowing your genetic expression or your phenotype and genotype is only of value if you can do something. And when there's nothing proven, what do you do about that? Yes, that's indeed at the moment so the the standpoint of most clinicians. Um, but the value of knowing that you have APOE4 and especially that you have both APOE4 alleles is that, yes, there is a very high risk that you might get Alzheimer's down the line. Um, but there is things that you might be able to do. You can look at lifestyle interventions. You can start living a healthier life. You can become more healthy which uh, newest research has has been shown might indeed uh, delay the onset of Alzheimer's for for, for people with this allele. Uh, And it might also slow the progression. So if they would end up getting Alzheimer's in the end anyway, there's no, it's not 100% cure, of course, if you start doing all the modifiers, changing your modifiable risk factors. Um, But it will also slow down the progression in Alzheimer's, it won't go as fast oh. as it would normally go in people with these alleles. So slow down the phenotypic expression of what otherwise you would think of as probably inevitable if you live long enough. If you get the APOE44, is it, you know, if you live to 90, you're pretty well doomed or am I overstating that? Uh, at the moment, um, the risks that they have put to this allele. So it is a, there's a lifetime risk if you have the homozygous version, so that's two APOA4 alleles. 
they say that people by the age of 85, about 70% of people that have two APOE4 um, alleles will end up having um, Alzheimer's. Okay. And the risk is lower for people who only have one mm-hmm. allele. Um, but yeah, you can. There, there, there are plenty of people that have hit 90 years old who have the APOE4-4, so two alleles, and did not get Alzheimer's. Do we study those people intensively to find out why they did well? The, 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 the problem is at the moment, because there's not much testing happening with the APOE4, that, uh, and the percentage of people that have the two alleles is only 1% to 2% of the population. So there's not many people that studies can use. Right. And that's another uh, positive uh, behind getting more people tested or more people interested in testing for APOE4 is that you will identify more people with the double two alleles or just one allele and they will be con- they will be able to contribute to more research studies on mm-hmm. what is exactly preventative and also uh, for for the pharmaceutical industry to be able to tailor better, better medication and maybe find better stuff that actually can treat Alzheimer's and those people that do get it in the end. Do you think that we're moving forward in the area of pharmacology? It seems like there was high hopes. Um, a lot of trials would show either no benefit or even negative outcomes and now a kind of pessimism that uh, circulates around the pharmaceutical approach to Alzheimer's. Is that is that a fair reading of how things are going now? I think uh, from, from what I've been reading, indeed, there is a bit, seems to be a bit of a stagnant phase at the moment in finding new medications for Alzheimer's. Um, they seem to struggle, indeed, with finding something that is actually can cure it or treat it or reverse symptoms. Right. Um, so at the moment, there's only a few that are, are, are approved medications for um, for for Alzheimer's, um, but 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 the research at the moment is not looking very positive on finding any new medications for Alzheimer's, um, and that's why uh, a lot of and a lot of researchers have have suggested as well to look more at early life intervention and try to change something there. Using the family history as a surrogate for the APO uh, APOE type testing. So if you've got a family history. The APOE4, I would guess, would show up in the family line as uh, Alzheimer's prevalence. Is that the simplest way of getting a, a surrogate marker for the alleles that we're worried about? It's not necessarily that, yes, if you have APOE4 in the family and you have APOE4, then your risk is even higher. This is just purely because of the, 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 the familial line. It's like right. with almost a lot of the diseases, if you have, for example, type 1 diabetes in your family, it's more likely that you can get it as well. Um, so, And that's the one with, with Alzheimer's as well. If you have APOE4 thrown in the mix, that chance risk even uh, gets, gets, gets greater indeed. Right. And that's what some people want to know it as well. They know that their parents have had Alzheimer's. They've seen how devastating it is. Um, or they know other people in their family, and that's why they want to get tested so they can prepare themselves for what what, what, what is to come or to plan indeed ahead for their when, when, when they go older, what, what, do, what do they want to do? How do, do they want to approach it if they do get Alzheimer's? That's an important, uh, an important point because most people, I think, fear losing their minds more than almost any other type of disease. You know, the strokes that disable you neurologically and the loss of the ability to make that decisions does mean that yeah. um, the living will, the concept of making the family informed, is an important 
but very, very difficult conversation to have with a person yes. 20 years ahead of uh, whenever the, the expression of it may occur. Yeah, and it, and it is, it, it's a, and I think that's what the problem is with a lot of people. It's a very, if you want to call it, a very scary disease, Alzheimer's, mm. and you're losing your mind. And, yeah, and you might not notice it, indeed. You might not notice it for, I don't know how long, before actually the clinical symptoms become really obvious to a lot of people. That And that's what one of the things that I think that maybe the current medication is not working, the pharmacological medication is not working because people get treated too late, they they show signs. They could come that late to the, to, to the doctors that maybe that's why it's not working anymore. The stage, it's too late, too far progressed. Right. So that's this... why it's also good to have people identified earlier. So maybe it works better if it if you get it early on in in, yeah. the, in your progression. This harks back to another area that I believe is your research, uh, the BRCA one and two. That the mm-hmm. idea, um, whatever you decide to do with that knowledge, is that you intervene early rather than wait for cancer to occur and then try and use techniques that are harmful. So the prevention, the the, the bilateral yeah. mastectomy approach is a prevention that's not applicable to the brain, obviously. You cannot chop out parts of the brain, but you can no. remove the breasts. So is this are these numbers similar for BRCA1, BRCA2? Is this like in the order of 70% risk if you uh, lifelong risk of cancer or... Is it very different? It is, yeah. No, the the, the risk profile is definitely very similar. Probably for uh, the BRCA1 and 2 carriers, um, the, the, the onset is usually a bit earlier than obviously for the Alzheimer's disease, but the risk profile is very, very similar indeed. Except that in that, you can make choices about whether to keep the breasts uh, or yeah. not to keep the breasts, whereas you have to keep your brain. You only get given one as far as we know. So. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the options for uh, the breast cancer is indeed much more uh, at hand. Indeed, you can do more screening, you can do uh, testing of yourself, you can uh, and those type of things. And indeed, some people uh, can they, they have the option if they want to indeed to to to, to have a mastectomy. Right. Whereas yeah, indeed for the brain, it's much more difficult, and um, and also yeah, the symptoms are also much more subtle. Obviously, then, then breast cancer are not as easy to identify. In the progression of Alzheimer's, is there any good evidence, one way or another, about use it or lose it? That that if you are in active problem solving, if your life is full of challenges and the like, does Alzheimer's speed up, slow down, or does it have no effect on Alzheimer's? There is evidence that indeed that if you are in the early stages of, of Alzheimer's, so you've got mild cognitive impairment, as they call it, that if you are depressed and not feeling happy, um, and I can't remember exactly which other effects were, um, but yeah, that that will speed up the, the progression of the, of, of the disease. So that's, that's definitely possible, yes. As it does many diseases. I mean, we find that all the time that depression and the neurological and mental associations seem to be a factor in cardiovascular disease, cancer risk. There seems to be a lot of areas where depression and it's almost like the body's slowing down and giving up. And uh, and, and there's there's also stress, obviously, is also a very very big one um, that that, that is associated with it. Except that uh, what I have noticed with the Alzheimer's patients that I have is often they're not stressed <laughs> because of the <laughs> lack of recognition of what is going on by that time, that the yeah. the stress is largely of the family, the carers, 
and the distress yeah. about, well, you know, what can we do to help? Whereas with, yeah. uh, with cancer, you don't lose mental faculties, you don't lose the ability for self-reflection. And so decision-making with yeah. breast cancer risk is a lot easier to give back to the person. Alzheimer's, the decision-making is largely lost by the time it's, you see them too late. And the ability to reflect yeah. and to, to make their own life decisions is part of the general stress, but not the stress for the person necessarily. Yes, no, no, I, I agree to that. Um, and when, when I was mentioning the stress, indeed, it's also mainly, also as I mentioned before, in midlife, your work stress, mm. what you're involved with, and those, those, those type of factors, not the stress of actually having the disease or, or noticing that, 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 your, that your mind is not there anymore the way right. it used to be. So it's more, 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 more the lifestyle stress and these from working too much or worrying about things or, yeah, those, yeah. Uh, does the epidemiology help us out at all here? Are there, are there populations where there is clearly reduced risk of Alzheimer's despite the genetics or is it that, you know, genetics are unevenly distributed through different populations around the world? It seems far more common in, you know, first world countries where sugars and maybe stresses and other modifiable risk factors are high. But is that, does that actually carry out in epidemiology? Do you know that? There's a few studies that, 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 that have looked at, for example, uh, diet and those type of things. And they're saying that, for example, well, uh, people who adhere very closely to a Mediterranean diet, so it's high in fish and those type of things, omega-3s, um, that they seem to have uh, a bit more less um, degree of Alzheimer's disease than, um, than than other people who live in the Western life. Life right. lots of lot, lot, lots of fats, both saturated fats and sugars and those type of things, which inevitably usually leads to indeed obesity, type two diabetes, those type of things, which are all risk factors. I suppose that's what I'm asking. Is that the, the APOE distributions are similar across those populations, but outcomes are changed by dietary, lifestyle, exercise and other interventions. Or not the, interventions, the, but just those those people who naturally fall into those categories, I would assume have a lower incidence uh, of Alzheimer's. There is a, there is a change in, um, uh, what's it called, uh, the, 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 the allele, the APOE4 allele. It's, yeah, there, there is, um, it's more prevalent in people, in, in populations that stem from around the equator and near the poles, oh. and it's less, indeed, in the middle, like in, in between. And I think it has to do something with met metabolic burden in the olden ages and those those, those type of things. Um, yeah, that's all, all still suggestive, but, the, but that's what they think. Okay, I, I had not heard of that. Equatorially, is Alzheimer's more common or...? Um, I don't know exactly about that, uh, but... Uh, um, but around equator and fault here, so it's the, high, the highest levels. But, but it doesn't mean, but they think that it's because the body copes with different ways with, 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 with metabolic stress and food and the way the foods that they were eating at that stage right. all the hundreds and thousands of years ago. Um, it's hard to explain indeed. So, so yeah, so, so the body adapted to whatever foods they were uh, eating and that's why there were more APOE4 alleles mm. in those people. And I think, I believe if people would probably adhere to the diets that their ancestors would be eating, have been eating like 100,000 years ago, that it probably would be all right. But indeed, we are changing on the way we eat. We are moving around the globe. Mm. We, and those, 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 those type of things. So yeah, uh, they may be indeed 
increasing their Alzheimer's. The problem is, of course, evolutionary biology doesn't seem to really apply so much to this because by the time APOE4 Alzheimer's uh, is expressed, breeding is already finished well and truly, whereas other other areas such as breast cancer could decrease reproductive fitness. Where it, it seems that uh, Alzheimer's, you have to live long enough to be able to see it as a problem that emerges certainly in communities. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I could imagine that there are natural cures out there. I, I, I'm sure you're aware of the work of Dale Bredesen um, yes, and yeah. his kind of approaches. What's your thoughts on him? Dale's written a book, which uh, I've read, I think it's called The End of Alzheimer's. It's, I found it impressive. I found it that there is evidence that you may be able to reverse moderate Alzheimer's. But more impressively, if you can reverse moderate Alzheimer's, taking those ideas back 25 years should have the capacity to be able to prevent as well. Do you have a bit of a take on Dale and his approach? Um, I've, I've read the research that Dale has done indeed, and I, I do believe, I absolutely do believe that what he's shown is absolutely correct, that it is possible in people who have already uh, shown signs of Alzheimer's that you can reverse mm. the signs of, of, of the disease. You can reverse the, 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 the cognitive impairment as a being seen at that moment. And I do think it has a great application, that type of work that he does also in people indeed that are not showing signs yet, that people are in midlife. And there is actually currently today, there is a lot of data coming out from um, from research studies that have been set up in Europe and Australia as well and the US, which looked at Alzheimer's prevention. And they're looking indeed at a much more personalised approach like Dale is doing and in people who haven't got Alzheimer's yet. And right. it's showing very promising signs indeed there as well that people who do um, try to address the modifiable risk factors for Alzheimer's earlier on in midlife, that their cognitive mind and cognitive factors uh, are much more much better than people who don't do that. Uh, I'd like to just go through a few of the things that are probably going to be of benefit. So it, it does seem as though there is still the management of cardiovascular issues, that just because you may yep. have Alzheimer's as different from vascular dementia, if you have vascular degeneration, it can only make it worse, right? So I'm guessing that yep. the same things when you talked of the Mediterranean diet what we know for cardiovascular risk reduction would apply in principle, irrespective of whether the amyloid plaques are you know, vascular or not. You don't want additional problems. So is that fair from what we understand? Yes, yes, I believe so, yes. Okay. So that gives us concepts of diet. There is mm -hmm. a question of your kind of social network, not on your iPhones or anything, but the number of other people you interact with. And I'll say, I'll say this because one patient of mine was diagnosed as suffering Alzheimer's, got a carer in who was fascinating to her. They became friends. The carer spent time with them. They went traveling. She clearly <laughs> improved dramatically over a period of a few years. And at the same time, this carer looked after her diet, looked after her health, but engagement in conversation and the using of the brain in that complex social interaction made a massive difference to her. That carer disappeared after a couple of years and there was a clear deterioration, not with any other factors, but simply 
the ability to communicate with another human seems to have a protective factor there. Isolation seems to accelerate it. I don't know if there's any science to that, but it seems likely that that plays a big part as well in one's ability no, to yeah. No, it absolutely is. Uh, the, the, the research shows that indeed social activity is very important and it keeps, keeps your brain engaged basically. And there was an interesting study, I believe it was earlier this year, which it basically said indeed that uh, if, if I quote her correctly, indeed, that people who are married have less Alzheimer's disease than people who are single. <laughs> and that's exactly that reason. It's social activity. You've got someone to talk to. You've got, yeah, more interactive. Um, yeah, and, and there's, there's way way more studies than, than, than just that one, indeed, that right. have shown that, indeed, that being socially active, being amongst the people, it challenges your brain, indeed. Um, and it makes you also feel happier. Right. Most, most, most of the time, I would assume. Oh, hang uh, on. Uh, I think I think my my understanding is marriage tends to benefit males and uh, doesn't benefit females all that much. So, <laughs> marriage is a great idea if you're a man to live longer and maybe better. But the, I think that the um, <laughs> the tradition of the past has meant that that just ups the workload for the for the women. Yeah. <laughs> so so social interaction we can put on the list of things that are probably highly valuable. Um, yep. Cardiovascular risk management. There's this idea of, you know, if you do Sudoku, or Sudoku, or I forget how to pronounce it, it's become so common, but if you do simple little puzzles, that that somehow exercises the brain like we exercise muscles. Is that true or is that just mythology? There, there is a lot of, no, there is also indeed a lot of research on that indeed. I think, I think they call it cognitive reserve, right. basically, indeed. And, yeah, yeah, there is a tendency, I believe, to decline as well over age. But, yeah, if you keep your brain active and you keep on doing those, you challenge your brain, that's apparently uh, a very very beneficial for, for it. And um, most of the cognitive stuff also focuses on uh, way, way, way more early in life, like um, completing your schooling and those type of things. Right. But that, that's, that, that's, that's the basis of your cognitive reserve. And then later in life, indeed, when the clients say, yeah, keep, keep your brain active, try to challenge your brain, try to do puzzles or something like that. Uh, it definitely helps. Okay, so yeah. your educational, your kind of level of education is a predictive factor. Is that what you're saying? Or is it cause not, or not, effect? Not, is it that not, people... Not, 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 not the level of education, but keeping yourself educated. So, so yeah, don't, don't drop out at, at year, 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 year 10 or something like okay. that. But, yeah, complete your education. And whether you're going to be a brain surgeon or a mechanic, yeah, keep on challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. Keep on updating things. Go go, go, go and do courses uh, while, while you're working and those type of things and keep your brain active. And they say that definitely has a big benefit okay. uh, for, 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 for your cognitive reserve, and which may benefit in the end, uh, to, to, towards reducing your risk, indeed, for, for, for getting cognitive decline as, as, uh, when you get older. There's a separate issue there of what vaguely is called socioeconomic class, that if you are wealthier and higher access to medical care, a lot of things go away, not necessarily maybe obesity, but um, there are a lot of things that go away. So is it is wealth or something as simple as access to medical services, is that at all predictive of onset of Alzheimer's or delay of onset of Alzheimer's? To a certain degree, I would believe it may be indeed, yeah, because you have more access to stuff and you can fork out more money <laughs> for maybe a better diet. Or something, something Survival like of the oh, richest. It sounds, yeah, it sounds horrible, but 
yes, and and but there is indeed also the problem usually with lower socioeconomic class that they indeed have right. lower education and haven't gone to school for as long, and yeah, they they might may they may also not have the interest in it. Uh-huh. They may not care about it, whereas people usually who have a better education and hence more likely earn more money, they're more interested in it today. Yeah, they're more they're more willing to to spend money on things like that. The the big one that comes up in lifestyle medicine, cancer risk, cardiovascular risk now, is the part of moving the body, exercise, um, mm-hmm. just getting getting around, getting sunlight exposure. But is exercise positively, negatively, or not at all correlated with um, Alzheimer's or progression of Alzheimer's? If we get people exercising, move them around, does it have a positive impact or not much? Um, again, yes, there is def- there's definitely research showing that if you are moving around well, and it doesn't mean that you have to be top athlete, mm-hmm. but if you do regularly exercise, and especially already starting in your midlife again, um, exercise regularly, it, yeah, it keeps your brain working and it does indeed benefit. Uh, it, may, it may benefit towards indeed reducing your, your Alzheimer's uh, risk. Does sleep play a part at all? There are chronically poor yep. sleepers that are always tired that are, have, you know, decreased um, mental capacity partly just simply because they can't sleep enough. Should we focus on sleep or is sleep, again, no evidence one way or the other? No, sleep sleep is another very important one. That's, that's, that's definitely true and it's more important. And they, they say at the moment uh, from the research I was reading, it's more when you get a bit older that you definitely should, should but make sure that you get enough sleep and those type of things. But sleep is definitely another one. Okay. Um, well, yeah, that that, that pe- pe- people should look at. And I believe um, that in some some of the personalised approaches that people have been looking at, um, in, indeed for treating Alzheimer's, is indeed that they definitely focus also on uh, on making sure that everybody gets enough sleep. Okay. Definitely also part of it. Yeah. So you mean once once the person does suffer Alzheimer's, sleep. It, what happens with sleep? I, I had assumed that with Alzheimer's, sleep would be longer hours uh, simply because there was less activity, but that, that's a misinterpretation, I think. I'm guessing sleep impairment can be just as uh, common, if not more common, in Alzheimer's than it is in the general population. I don't, I, I don't know the exact data on it. I just know indeed that indeed having a good sleep for people who have uh, early Alzheimer's and everything like that is definitely can 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 be beneficial for reduces them. the expression of it or yeah. reduces the symptoms. Mm. All right. Is there anything else I've left out there as what we regard as modifiable risk factors that we should start twenty five years before in the susceptible or oh, probably in everybody for to be truthful, but in those with the highest susceptibility or the highest likelihood of Alzheimer's, is there anything else that we can do twenty five years ago? That we know makes a positive impact. I think we've covered most of, most of them. There, there, there is the, the general ones, which is basically more attributable to heaps of other diseases as well. Um, just basically watch smoking, don't yeah. drink too much, those type of things. Um, yeah, and try to eat a healthy diet. But I think we covered that already. Yep. I think uh, that the good quality nutrition nutrition does yep. tend to go down once people develop Alzheimer's. Their ability to care for their own diet certainly goes down, and carers have to mm. be quite committed. And uh, often, you know, this comes back to what I want to talk about now: the APOE type uh, problems. Often, one when people around a person suffering early Alzheimer's realise it's Alzheimer's. 
they internally give up uh, on that person. And that accelerates mm. things. I'm convinced now, having seen that in my practice many times, that that negative expectation says, well, what can you do about it? Why would I want to do anything? Why would I look after diet? Why exercise? This is just running yeah. downhill in a bad way. And it's important that we break that, I think. Yes, absolutely. I think the general mindset of the majority of the population is indeed there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. But the research is showing uh, that, and for example, Lagdale's uh, work, is that, yes, there is something you can do about it. Um, if you look up, keep, keep, make sure they eat well, make sure they sleep well, maybe take take them for walks every day or some, something like that, go and engage with other, take, take them to, to, to places where they can interact with other people, yeah. play games with them. Um, yeah, so there is a lot more things that... That definitely can benefit those people, but it's just not known yet. I believe to 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 the wider. There is there is one population. thing that I think is universally pretty good, and that's uh, grandchildren or great grandchildren, youngsters um, who don't yes. have prior expectations, <laughs> tend to challenge <laughs> challenge <laughs> adults, whatever their cognitive capacity. And there's delightful interactions that I, I watch all the time between kids that don't know anything about Alzheimer's have no negative expectations and grandma or grandpa is just grandma or yep. grandpa, um, they tend to bring them back to life. And so I'm not sure that you can therapeutically prescribe grandchildren. <laughs> It'd be an well, interesting it's, it's interesting that you mention it, but there is places um, in Europe, and I believe there, uh, I think, I think, I think there's someone in Holland, where they have integrated nursing homes or care homes with either student accommodation or with childcare places. Right. So, or kindergarten. So, indeed, there's much more interaction between the elder people who, who are at risk of cognitive decline or who already have cognitive decline, and they get much more interaction with right. younger people. And, yeah, and they, 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 they seem it, it stimulates them, indeed. It has a positive effect on, on, on the elderly. It certainly does. When, when grandchildren are born to a person with cognitive decline, I'm I'm remarkable. It is remarkable in my clinical practice to see them come back to life. That there's almost like my job here is finished. Oh no, it isn't. <laughs> there yeah. is there is a next generation that we're taking on from here, and they find a reason to live again. And whether it is temporary or permanent, I have no real take on. But there certainly is an improvement in function and that interaction without the expectations and the negativity surrounding their previous decline, just does wonders for them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah no, I absolutely agree with that, yeah. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is just take a little bit of a dive. I wish to understand this APOE and the, the different alleles and what we should be doing as clinicians. My listeners are, you know, primarily practitioners. And mm -hmm. so I want to try, kind of work through this of do we test, don't we test, what is apolipoprotein E and why is it important? Why do we think it's important in Alzheimer's? And like BRCA1 and 2, is it only Alzheimer's or is it a more generalized metabolic issue that we're dealing with with APOE? So could you just give me a bit of an overview? What is APOE? So APOE, the, the protein that it encodes, it's uh, involved in the transport of cholesterol and other lipids in the body. Um, and it also helps um, in, in the clearance of uh, of the amyloid in the right. brain and and in neurosignal in the brain as well. So amyloid accumulates in the brain in a normal person all the time, and the APOE is a is a remover of that amyloid. Yes, yes, that's that, that, that's how I understand it. Yes, right. 
uh, at the moment is three different variations of the APOE gene, if you can call it. It's three different alleles. They're yeah. called E2, E3, and E4. E3 is the most common one. Um, it's like in about three quarters of, of, of the population will have the E3. Um, we, we'll have two copies of the E3 allele, right. which um, um, that's usually what everything is measured against. Uh, the e, you've got the E2 and the E4, and the E4, they'll compare to the E3 for, for risk, and the E2, they compare to E3 for, for risk factors, basically, um, when, when calculating risk. And Are these SNPs? Are, they, are these just uh, single nucleotide yes. replacements? So they're, they're three SNPs, three variants of exactly the same gene? Although they're actually two SNPs. If you don't have either one of the SNPs, you are the E3, E3. basically. That's okay. what they call it, yes. So... Uh, they have associated the E4, obviously, with Alzheimer's disease, but it's also related to um, a cardiovascular disease, indeed. People who have that day seem to, E4, they seem to have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. They seem to have, um, in, in general, higher levels of LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol, um, whereas the people with the E2 allele, which is not as common, um, they usually have a reduced risk the, 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 the risk of cardiovascular disease is less. Right. And they usually have lower levels of LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol. Okay. So that's basically how it is. And the E3 basically sits in the middle. Okay. <laughs> the, the, so, the, the, the risk of Alzheimer's in people who have two, two, three alleles is basically the same as what you expect in the, in the general population. So the E33 is about 75%. So yeah. the the other ones are the heterozygous, the E34 or E32 or E23, and and then homozygous APOE2 and homozygous APOE4 are the rare variants, aren't they? Yes, yeah. Approximately what percentage? Are we talking about 2, 3, 4%? Is it around that range for the homo? The E44 is about 1 to 2%. 1 to 2%. Of the population, yes. Okay. So it's very small and the E22 is even... Less than that. Okay. So the common variants, the ones that we think of as the tsunami, are really the E34 primarily, mm -hmm. so that they're heterozygous and there is a bit of a mopping up. So I'm, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing in the genetic sense, this is kind of partial penetrance, that as you have one, two copies of the gene, where do you fall? With an E34, is it halfway between the E3 risk and the E4 risk? Is that approximately right? Uh, it's not exactly halfway. I would say it's a bit below halfway right. from, 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 from all the data that I've read, but you definitely have a higher risk than just E3-3. Okay. Definitely is that, but it's not. Yeah, I think, I think it's closer to the E3-3 when you have 3-4 than, than, than 2 to 4-4. Four, four. Okay. So if you're a Buddhist and you're coming back, choose parents carefully, get the E2 variants of your parents. Is that what we're yes, yes, saying? Yes, yeah, if you can find someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that takes us on to CRISPR technologies where we're apparently going to be designing these things and uh, fiddling with the genes at the conception stage. So I'm guessing it's yeah. not beyond the pale to think that people may start actually you know, manipulating for the um, APOE2. I don't, yeah. I don't want to go down that pathway, but that, that gives me a bit of a perspective. So about 1% homozygously, or a bit lower than 1%, homozygously at lower risk, 1% to 2% at clearly higher risk, which is the APOE44. Yeah. And then most of us in that middle range um, where, yeah. where we have average risk or slightly moving up towards the E4 risk end of the spectrum. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what they do? Like, they shunt out 
the amyloid? Is that is there a binding method or is the is the process known? Because usually if the process is known, a drug is developed to fiddle with that process and the drugs should have been successful and they're not. So yeah. what I wonder is, do we really understand that process? I know Dale Bredesen's got the view that the amyloid is a protective response, not a pathological response. Mm. But if the APOE's job is to keep on removing the amyloid, I don't know that you can sustain that view, can you? Well, the the, the, magic case, uh, the, 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 the pharmaceutical approach has been, uh, as far as I'm aware, usually indeed to target the amyloid buildup yeah. in the brain, and that hasn't been working. Right. So, so the medication that have developed that's not working for it. It's not doing as well as they were hoping it would. My understanding is, though, that it did the job, right? It actually did reduce the amyloid. It just didn't change the progression of the disease. Or yeah. So, if it does the job, as Dale Bredesen kind of points out, if the drug you give does the job you wanted it to do, and it still doesn't work then you need to go back to first principles about exactly what were you doing. The surrogate of the amyloid mm. may yeah. not be the disease itself. It may just be a marker of a protective process, and that was yeah. that could be why the trials go the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there is a lot of uh, indeed talk about why the medication is not working indeed, and it, I think partially it is indeed from what I've been reading about APOE4, and it, yeah, there is still uncertainty indeed about exactly what it's doing, and uh, in the brain and whether it's good or bad. So there, there I think, is only one or two uh, medications left out of the many that were tried. And even those, yeah. I mean, at their best, they, they work poorly. And so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're left in medicine with a, with a problem that if what you're using doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work, just doing it again and again is just mad. Yeah. And yeah. so I a think new the approach US is needed. two approved uh, medications, uh, drugs for, 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 for Alzheimer's at the moment, yes. Right. I don't know exactly how it is here in, in Australia. So where do you see this going next? So we have Alzheimer's as a building tsunami. We've got poor evidence so far for the lifestyle factors. Is that simply because we haven't looked hard enough and we were putting too much onto the pharmacological treatment? Or is it because, you know, at best, lifestyle intervention is only a minor factor in whether uh, whether you develop Alzheimer's or not? Um I think we just haven't looked at enough on the lifestyle factors, indeed. Um, there is, There has been research coming out that basically says, well, if we start looking uh, at the modifiable risk factors, the so lifestyle factors, they think that about one-third of the cases of Alzheimer's disease can be attributed to those factors. So that's quite a lot if you think about um, the, the, the incidence of Alzheimer's and the way it's going. It's sort of what if a third of the cases might be prevented or delayed with with onset. That's that, that's quite a lot, and okay. it, that would have have a big big social impact, but also economic impact. And the economic burden would would be a massive reduction in that. Yes, and if any drug were to achieve that, it would be called a breakthrough drug and it would be all over yeah. the front page of newspapers. So, yeah. in typical terms, lifestyle intervention works, but it works in a slow and non-dramatic way and no one's getting any money from putting people in, into a good yeah. lifestyle. So, Yeah, but there is, there is more, uh, and as you mentioned before, yeah, I think this research has mainly focused uh, in the past on pharmaceutical, uh, uh, ph ph pharmacological approaches, but it has been in the last probably five, ten years that they have actually decided, well, it's not working. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe we should look at preventing it. Maybe we should look at other things. And it is now uh, definitely money being put into a lot more uh, preventative research. Uh, the problem is, of course, that those studies run for a very long time mm. to be able to get all the data because you have to start when people are not showing, showing symptoms yet. Yeah. Um, but the first data that is coming out is looking very promising. There is in the US at the moment is about three or four, I believe, Alzheimer's prevention clinics. So mm-hmm. if people who are at high risk can go and say, hey, I'm interested in reducing my risk and I've, I've had Alzheimer's in the family, whether they know that they're four or not, okay. they will get tested for it there usually then. Uh, but yeah, they can go and say, look, I'm interested in reducing my Alzheimer's risk and they look at the people and all the factors, their blood works, their genetics, um, whether they indeed do sports, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, a lot of factors and they tailor approach for them, for those on individual on an individual level, uh, they get basically told, "Well, this is your plan. Okay. If you stick to this, that might reduce your risk of getting Alzheimer's and living to old life." But it sounds to me like though they're they're doing the studies then mainly on the APOE four four in order to have a high risk population. And so we do this in medicine a lot. We choose the the highest risk population and then extrapolate backwards about what's good for the rest. Um, and, and, you know, in, in, say, cardiovascular disease, we like people who have already had a heart attack before we try and intervene. And we like mm-hmm. to have people that have got clear Alzheimer's symptoms before we go and say you could develop Alzheimer's. It's an economic issue often in the studies. You want the worst yeah. to find out yeah, what you yeah. can do with them. Do you think that what applies to the worst is likely to also apply to say the APOE three four group, or even just the you know the normal risk of uh, Alzheimer's for the APOE three three. I would say yes in in this this case. And um, okay. the, the, the APOE four four, they, they have just been shown yet that they progress quicker than normal and those right. type of things. So I think if it if it is working for them in theory, it should also work for the other people. Yes. So I'm going to put the question to you: Should we be testing? for the APOE4, for people where there is any suggestion, any, say, family history, is it a worthwhile thing to do to go out and test the APOE4 or should we leave it alone? Which, What's your approach there? I think it's definitely worthwhile risking, uh, well, not risking, testing for, for, for APOE4. <laughs> <laughs> the risk is that someone finds out about it and won't insure you, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, they, they, but indeed there is a big but and it's indeed... Um, the person has to be wanted to be tested. Obviously, the right. person who, who who comes into the practitioner, he wants to know the result. He has to understand what the implications are if he finds out the result and they're not. They, right. they are, for example, four four. So they, they yeah, there's a lot of uh, psychological um, things involved. Um, and it's not just for the person itself, it's maybe also for the kids that they may have. So if you know that you carry an APOE4 allele, well, well, that might mean that maybe you pass it on, especially yep. if, you, if you're, of course, a homozygote, the 4-4, four, four, you, you will pass it on to one of your kids, one of the alleles. And then everything depends on the spouse. Yes. And so so it's really, yeah, it's really what do you want to do with the results? So um, I think it's definitely worthwhile, especially in cases where there is a lot of... Uh, uh, Alzheimer's in a family and those type of things. If mm. people are interested in it, I think they should definitely have yeah. uh, the option to test it, uh, but they have to understand what it means 
This is one definitely that you need the counselling to go along with the testing. You cannot Absolutely. just dump Absolutely. a test result and allow the person to walk off with it. Yeah, they, they, they definitely need to receive genetic counselling. And if it comes back that they are a carrier of, of one or two FOE4 alleles, they should also be provided with options. What can you do about right. it? With some information, because a lot of people struggle from the research that I've read that they don't know what to do with it. They go, for example, to 23andMe, they get their data, they put it in a different website, and it tells them you're FOE4, you're a high risk of Alzheimer's, and then they don't know what to do. Yeah. So what, what, what does this mean? What am I going to do? Am I going to get Alzheimer's or not? Or uh, Yeah, and a lot of people who find out that they have one or two visa deals, they want to get information. Yeah. So what can I do then now? Okay, I know I've wanted to know this information. Unfortunately, I have it. What can I do? Yeah. Well, that's why I'm really looking forward. Dale Bredesen is coming over for the 2019 Biocuticals Symposium. Yeah. I think that we're going to have a lot of questions to ask of uh, of him while he's over here. But I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to that because for the first time, there does appear to be evidence building that what we do yeah. as in advising as a clinician may be able to make a difference both in prevention and maybe in the management of early, uh, early Alzheimer's. So it will yeah. be eye-opening to me after years of depression about do I test or not. It may make the test yeah. really worthwhile to know where to target my treatment. Yes, yeah, and there is uh, there is indeed also evidence indeed for people who do have the FOE4 or FOE4, both alleles, one or two alleles, that certain dietary changes also might actually be more beneficial. They might respond even better to it than normal people right. who, who, who just have only just the FOE3-3. So, yeah. Dr. Sasha Beetstra-Hill, it has been delightful to talk with you. You've eased my mind on a few subjects to do with Alzheimer's. When when you reach my tender age in my mid-60s, um, we always want a bit of confirmation <laughs> that, <laughs> that the future is bright. And I haven't done any gene testing yet, but thank you so much for your input and for your uh, the information that we've got for our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I could be of help. I'm Dr. Mark Donahue, and thank you for joining us today on FX Omics. If you enjoyed FX Omics today, head over to fxmedicine.com.au for our comprehensive show notes, articles, and infographics and a full listing of all our podcast releases. 